This is the Monroeville Christian Church podcast, where you can find sermons, Bible studies, and other biblical content produced by Monroeville Christian Church. My name is Covey Wise. I'm one of the preachers at Monroeville Christian Church. We're committed to teaching, training, and transforming lives for Christ, and we invite you to grow with us. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, if you want to turn in your Bibles. So we're going to begin a new series this morning on the conversion accounts in the book of Acts. And I titled this one, I got this from good friend Derek Baker. This is one of nine. We're going to look at nine different conversion accounts as we go through this series. And uh, this one happens to be the first one. And uh, I have some big shoes to fill this morning because the first time this sermon was preached, how many people came to the Lord? 3,000. I don't think we're going to see that kind of response this morning, but the church can have that kind of response still today when the gospel message is preached and is taught to other people. Acts chapter 2, you would turn in your Bibles there. The book of Acts serves a unique role in the New Testament as the history book, the beginning of the church. And it picks up where the Gospels leave off and provides this historical foundation for the letters that are written in the New Testament. And the book of Acts deals with uh, spreading the Gospel and, and the growth of the Lord's Church. It is the only record that we have, biblical record, that we have of the first 30 years of the church. And in this historical record, we've got all these different conversion accounts. Now, why, why is it important to go to the book of Acts versus any other book of the Bible when we consider the process of conversion. Why is it important? What's that? That's the blueprint. That's where we see it happening. And many times that their individuals are, are they're used to going to other books or maybe they're tempted to go to other books. But the rest of the letters that we have written in the New Testament after the book of Acts primarily deal with letters that were written, written to people who were already Christians. They'd already obeyed the gospel. They had gone from being a non-Christian to a Christian. And so if we want to find out where and how, we go to the book of Acts when we're discussing conversion. In Acts, we find the apostles and other preachers and teachers leading people to a proper understanding of Christ and His redeeming work for the first time. In some of the accounts, like in our text today, we even have the sermon recorded of the gospel being preached. And these are valuable to study so that we know how to address different individuals from different backgrounds who may have different religious ideas or maybe no religious idea at all. We also have descriptions of commands that people were told to obey to receive God's saving grace through Christ Jesus. And we refer to these commands as conditions of salvation or the plan of salvation. And as we study through these conversions, conversion accounts, it's important we consider each part of that plan. We're going to see belief. We're going to see repentance. We're going to see confession. We're going to see baptism by immersion for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see them proclaiming to stay faithful to the Lord. 
And so these valuable examples of conversion cannot be overstated. Because today we hear many different gospels being proclaimed. Paul told the Galatian churches, as we have already said, now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. This is serious business. Many millions, if not billions, in the history of the world have been led astray by false teaching when it comes to salvation because those preaching the gospel did not go to the place that we have written where it tells us how to become a Christian. And on top of that, even when the facts of the gospel are correctly preached, sometimes people are told to respond in a way that is not found in the New Testament. And so with the book of Acts, we're going to find help here to make sure that the truths of the gospel and the commands of our Lord are taught faithfully. The first example in our series, again, will be this account on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2. This account is the first account of conversion that we have written down for us in the scripture. This is the beginning of the church, and it's significant in that regard because it, it's the prototype for all of the other conversions. What we learn from this one, we should consider it as we learn from the other ones. And so let's start with verse 1 in Acts chapter 2. It was the day of Pentecost. And it tells us there, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So this annual Jewish feast of the Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. It was the presentation of the first fruits. Some think that maybe over a million people are in Jerusalem at this time. Many would travel great distances to be there for Pentecost. The three feasts that they were required to be at, according to the law, were the Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. But this one, the, the, the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, I should say, was the one where a lot of Jews tried to get there because it was a good time of the year to travel. Passover, it was a little more difficult to travel during that time. Also, the, the Feast of Tabernacles became more difficult as they went later in the year to travel. But this one, if you were going to pick one feast, if you could only afford to get to Jerusalem for one feast, this would be it for the Jew. The mood of this feast was joyous, centered around the harvest time, and people would be very glad to see each other and to see this great multitude gathering to praise God. Kaufman gives us this anecdotal information as to why Pentecost was chosen probably for the birthday of the church. And he said, The very weightiest reasons appear for God's choice of this day for the beginning of the church. As Jesus was crucified at a great Jewish festival, it was appropriate that he should have been glorified at another. Pentecost was next after the Passover, and it was the anniversary of the giving of the law. The first fruits were offered on Pentecost, and it was proper that the first fruits of the gospel should come unto God on this very occasion. And millions of people would have been in Jerusalem at this time. Most importantly of all, perhaps, by its falling upon the first day of the week, it coincided in that particular with the resurrection of Christ. And was thus a major, of major importance in certifying Sunday, the first day of the week, as the day of the Christian assembly. 
And so for all those reasons, Pentecost was a, a great day, possibly the, the best option for the Lord's church to begin. Now some teach that the apostles and the rest of the disciples were in the house, but it's more probable that they were probably in the open area, the large area of the temple, preaching and teaching based on how many thousands respond to this sermon. And they respond that very hour. Let's keep reading verse 2 through 13. It says, Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. And utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? And some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. And so the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles in this miraculous way. This was promised by Jesus to them on one occasion. If you flip back over to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus was eating with them there and he, he gave them these words. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then in Luke, we have similar language. In Luke 24, verses 45 through 49, it says, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures, and he told them, This is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So Jesus told his apostles that this would happen, and it did. Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit baptism the apostles received was accompanied by these audible and visual signs. There was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. And it was loud enough that it gathered the crowd to come and see what was going on. There was something that looked like tongues of fire sitting above them. The Greek word that's used here is, is kind of a, it's a, an urgent thing that happens. These tongues of fire come over them and they, they sit there for just a moment. They're filled with the Holy Spirit in this miraculous way. And then that tongue leaves. This miraculous gift of the Spirit enabled the apostles to speak in foreign languages. Every person there, as we just read, all those different nationalities, heard them speaking in all these different languages. And they say, in verse 7, it says that they were all Galileans. That's how we know that they were the apostles. Because the rest of the disciples would have been from all over Palestine. So this was something that was specific 
It was a promise to the apostles. It was something that happened directly to the apostles. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because I want to get to the, the actual conversion account. But it's important to mention here for multiple reasons that we know this baptism of the Holy Spirit was for the apostles only. Reese tells us being filled with the Spirit is much different than the indwelling gift of the Spirit that is promised for the penitent believer when we're immersed into Christ. Suffice it to say here that this filling gave these men, the apostles, the endowments that they needed to qualify them to do the work of an apostle. In fact, it would appear that it was the thing that made an apostle as compared to a prophet or another teacher. These men spoke in various languages. This wasn't gibberish. It wasn't unintelligible. And some even say that this was done to reverse what God had done at Babel. That sin ruined the unity that comes with one language. Sin at Babel brought division and separation. And here at the glory of Pentecost, the unifying of the language through the Spirit was able to bring the message of the gospel that would be the light to the world. The message of salvation and freedom from the bondage of sin. And it's also worth quickly noting that the baptism of the Holy Spirit ceased with the apostles. The only, only those who they laid their hands on were given miraculous gifts of the Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 13 is a, a good study for that. If you have time to go there and, and take a look at that and really delve into what it has to say. But the purpose for these miraculous gifts were to verify the, the proclamation of the message of salvation for Christ. Always remember which is greater. The gospel. The gospel message was greater on this day and it will always be greater than any sign or wonder or miracle because it's only through the gospel that people are going to be saved. And so we see the reaction of the crowd was mixed. Some were amazed, some were confused. Others mocked them, accused them of even being drunk. But think about what had just happened. These men were simple Galileans, Galilean fishermen with no formal education. And all of a sudden they began preaching all at the same time in different languages that none of them had studied to various people groups in a crowd of thousands and thousands of people. So those who were jealous, all they could do was just mock them. Peter gives his explanation, verses 14 through 21. It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In these last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter, he... He says it's too early for them to be drunk. And 
He said, what you're seeing today is part of this fulfillment of what the prophet Joel had to say. There are many points to this prophecy. Once again, we're not going to get into all those nuances in this. What's important to get from that section of Scripture is that God promised to pour out His Spirit on all people. And they were seeing this happen in real time. This was a sign to the people that this prophecy was being fulfilled. And Peter is about to tell them how the Holy Spirit will be given to them. How they too can be a fulfillment of this prophecy. And call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And this is still a promise for those who believe in Christ today. To call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. To call on the name of the Lord is another way to say, obey Him. Obey His commands and be faithful and you'll be saved. And so what do we have so far? We have a large gathering of religious people, possibly mostly Jews, from different locations and language groups from different parts of the world. They're initially drawn by the miraculous events that are occurring. And Peter's explained the meaning of those events up to this point. And now he's going to deliver the first gospel sermon. That was ever preached. Starting in verse 22, he says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. But this was the birthday of the church. This marked the official beginning of the kingdom of God among men. The kingdom that Christ would reign over for eternity began that day. This was the occasion that had been prophesied for a thousand years, thousands of years before. Peter preached Christ for the very first time. And the gift of salvation was offered to the masses. Peter was the right man. Chosen for the right moment. And we, we know who Peter was. A, a man of courage. A man of grit. Not afraid to bring this simple yet grand masterful plan 
about God's Son to the world and how this world might be saved through Him. And concerning this sermon, McGarvey said, Never did mortal lips announce in so brief a space so many facts of import to the hearers. We might challenge the world to find a parallel to this in the speeches of her orators or the songs of her poets. There is not such a thunderbolt in all the burdens of the prophets of all of Israel. There is no single more powerful message ever spoken that will convict and change the hearts and minds of people than the gospel. There is not a single more powerful message that will change the hearts and minds of people than the gospel. And as my friend Aaron Aaron Davis says, boom shakalaka. If he were here, he'd say that. There is not a single message, folks. There's not anything more powerful that we can say to another person that will convict their heart and mind than the gospel message. The church should never be ashamed of the gospel because it's the only thing that can bring salvation to the world. Peter began with the life and the miracles of Jesus, which his audience would have known about. They saw what Christ did. Many in the crowd probably benefited from what Jesus had done. No doubt many of their loved ones had been healed or cared for in some way by Christ or His disciples. And after saying that Peter lays the blame of Jesus' death at their feet, tells them they were part of putting this Messiah to death, the Anointed One of God. But he also said it was in keeping with God's predetermined plan. Peter declared, God raised Jesus from the dead. And he gives him three points of evidence here, like any good preacher. First sermon ever had three points. He said, first is the testimony of David. David prophesied about the resurrection of God's anointed. And Peter proves that there's no way that David could have been speaking about himself. Because David's still buried and in the tomb. So that prophecy was about Jesus. So they have no choice but to accept the testimony of Scripture in that prophecy. Peter mentions the testimony of the apostles, that they were eyewitnesses of Christ and what happened. And how can they argue with the testimony of that many eyewitnesses? Peter knows that they cannot. And then there's the testimony of the miraculous outpouring of the Spirit that they had just witnessed. That that Spirit was evidence that Christ had been exalted to the right hand of God. And with all that evidence in mind, Peter says, another prophecy of David was fulfilled. That the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That prophecy was fulfilled through the very events of that day on Pentecost. And they couldn't argue. With it. They couldn't argue with David. They couldn't argue with the prophecies that had been fulfilled. They couldn't argue with what they had seen and heard on that very day, proving that Christ had been exalted. And having been presented with undeniable evidence laid out by Peter, this is why Peter said, Therefore, 
Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. See, it was time for them to understand all of this fully. To accept it as fact and firmly believe in Christ's redeeming plan for man. The listeners were convicted by all this. And in verse 37, it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The word literally means to prick or pierce. To cut deep at the heart and soul of the person. And we all understand what it means to be pricked. Anybody have any rose bushes or maybe a barberry bush in your yard? You've tried to go and grab some weeds from around that plant. And what happens if you don't have gloves on, some nice thick gloves? You're going to get pricked. You're going to get poked. Maybe one of those thorns are going to get stuck in your finger. And for the next maybe five or ten minutes, can you really think about anything else? No, it's all, that's all you can do is to think about, man, I've I got to get that out. It hurts so bad. I've got to do something about it. I have to respond to it. That, that's the idea here. They were so pricked to the heart. They were convicted by what they had just seen and heard about God's plan for the ages. They had to do something about it. We've got to make this right. We crucified the Messiah. Hearing the message of the gospel should cause every person to understand the gravity of sin in their own life and believe in the Lord Christ. That it was in part due to my sin, due to your sin, that Christ had to endure the cross. And that only by believing and trusting in Him can you be saved. That God loved me so much despite the cruel death His Son had to suffer on the cross because of me. He completed His plan of redemption for me. Not only was it God's plan, it was prophesied about. It was witnessed by many. They were so grieved at hearing this, they couldn't help but say, what shall I do? The gospel message should prick our conscience. Every time we read this account, cause us to think about how we too had a part in crucifying Jesus. And it should cause us to ask, what shall I do, Lord? How should I live my life? How can I share this saving message with someone else today? Peter replied to their question with two commands and two promises. Very simple. 
This gets screwed up so much in the religious world today. Peter, Peter said, you, you understand what you need to do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you, your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The command to repent and be immersed for the remission of sins. There's no separating them. They're to be applied together. And you'll, received the, you'll receive the gift, the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. Luke then summarized what followed. Peter, he continued to offer testimony and exhortation with verse 40. It says, with many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So this verse tells us we only have a portion of the full sermon but we have mo the most important parts leading up to them asking that question. What must we do? And verse 41 says they accepted the message right then and there as they finished preaching. And about 3,000 were, were baptized and added to their number that day. With their response, the church began. On the day of Pentecost. It was an amazing day. 3,000 souls respond to the gospel. But what else can we learn? Peter's focus in this sermon was on the word. Not the signs and the wonders. But on the word of God. His theme was the resurrection. And the exaltation of Jesus. His life they knew about, but his resurrection and exaltation to God's right hand is what Peter sought to prove here. That they would eventually accept Jesus as Lord and Christ. And what about their response? It shows that it's one thing to be convinced, but another to be convicted. And many are still convinced. Many are persuaded to belief in Christ. To have faith in Christ. Well, this crowd had faith in Jesus by asking that question, what shall we do? But that wasn't enough, was it? They had to respond to that question by obeying the will of God. But they were not just simply convinced. They were convicted, proved guilty of their sinfulness. And they had to do something about it. And even today, many will be convicted by the Word of God. They'll ask the same question, what, what must I do? What shall I do? But they don't respond the way God wants them to. But this doesn't mean that the gospel doesn't work. How many people were there on that day, maybe, approximately? Maybe over a million. Not everyone responded to that first gospel sermon. In fact, only a few compared to the crowd that may have been there. 3,000 is a pretty small number when you're talk talking about a million people listening. 
But the seed of the word was planted. And the gospel was preached. And even today, we may not think that we're making that big of a difference when sharing the word of God. But you are, church. And the gospel is worth preaching. Those who were baptized were promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. Most church scholars would say that this gift of the Holy Spirit is the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. According to Acts chapter 5, we're given, it says there in verse 32, we're witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. And this is what we receive today, those who are baptized into Christ, immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sins, you're also promised the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. This gift Peter is talking about is not some other gift that the Spirit gives. It's not salvation. It's not miraculous spiritual gifts. It's the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit that comes to all Christians. Galatians 4 verse 6 says, Because you are His sons... God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. And so those who were baptized were added to the church that very day. So when preaching the gospel, our focus needs to be on the death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ. And the evidence we offer should be the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of the eyewitnesses, the apostles' doctrine, that we have written down for us. And our goal is that people will accept the Lordship of Christ. And they will be brought to a point to where they will ask the same question, what shall I do? And we will be able to tell them, believe in Him. Repent of your sins. Confess Him as Lord. Be immersed, as we're told, so that you may have the forgiveness of sins and receive the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. Those who preach in the name of Christ should preach as the apostles did. Those who choose to respond to the preaching of the gospel should respond as those who heard the apostles preach on this very first day. So we're going to ask this morning, have you responded to the gospel? Our guys are going to come forward. We're going to sing an invitation song. And if you have not responded, if you haven't been converted, maybe you've been brought to a point to where you're convinced and you say, I, I need more information. I need to learn more about this. Maybe you are to the point where you've studied what it means to become a Christian. And you say, yes, I'm convicted. I need to do this. This is a great time to make it happen. Be like the crowd that day. They heard Peter's sermon. They were presented with the evidence. And they re responded by being immersed that very hour for the forgiveness of their sins and the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're ready to make that decision, we're ready for you to come today as we stand and sing.